0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. And so just as a quick recap, I just want to kind of walk through these four scenes because I know many of us are forgetful or we haven't made it to every week. So the first scene was on the road. It begins with a family that was on the road leaving their home in search of food. Into it, and they went to a, for, a foreign a foreign land and after ten years of hoping and trying to find a life there, it really really focuses on this mother Naomi and how she has lost her husband in this foreign land. Also lo- lost her two sons, uh, but she had two daughters in law there and one of them uh, at, at, after this experience said, I, "I'm going to stay here." And Naomi's like, "I'm going to go home," and but there is this daughter in law named Ruth who said you know, I'm going to cling to you. And so Ruth left her old life behind and walked with Naomi back on this road back to Naomi's home. And we see this woman, Naomi, just struggling with God, with life, just with real bitterness towards God. And she's walking back the same road that she left 10 years ago. She's walking it back empty-handed. The Scene two is in the field. To fight starvation, uh, Ruth was able to, to go into the barley fields to glean after the harvesters so uh, they could take whatever was left behind, all the scraps that was left behind. And, and in the midst of all of this, it was her first experience of doing this, uh, she happened to stumble upon, happened to stumble upon the field of a very kind, godly man named Boaz who just so happens to be uh, a relative of her deceased husband. And in their culture in that day and time, there's something called a kinsman redeemer, which it was the practice where uh, to continue a family's line, if there was a widow, uh, it was the right or the obligation of a brother or a cousin to marry her, to continue that family line, to provide for her and give her a future. And so uh, that's how they meet each other. They meet there in the field, and that's where the scene kind of ends. And in scene number three, we move from the field to the threshing floor. So this is in the barley harvest season, at the very end of the season, as the grain was getting separated and, 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 the, and the barley was becoming, uh, you know, gathered for, to sell. At the very end of this uh, season, there's, this was a time of great celebration. There was 10 years of famine. Ten years of waiting and hoping for God's provision. Ten years of hunger. Ten years of starvation, waiting for God to show up. And here we find on this threshing floor is the end of this great celebration. And Boaz was celebrating this event. And um, through the questionable advice of Ruth's mother-in-law, she uh, comes to this point in this very delicate situation. In the middle of the night, she, she comes to Boaz and she makes a very, very bold request. And the bold request was that she is calling Boaz to be her redeemer on this threshing floor. And what we see is these two characters, godly characters, uh, just their, their character emerges in this, in this moment on this threshing floor. And uh, Boaz loves this bold request. But there is a problem. The problem was that there is a relative closer than he and so he, he was kind of in second in line, but there was a relative who was first in line, and, and that relative who was first in line had to have the opportunity to redeem Ruth. And so it kind of ends the third scene wondering, how is Boaz going to settle this matter? That leads us to the fourth and final scene, and it's going to be at the city gate, the so city gate The city gate is where people would have their transactions, their financial and their legal transactions. It would be kind of a, a public space where the elders of the town could be there and, and people could have these interactions right there and so that 's where we 're going to find this fourth and final scene in, in scene four. This is Ruth four chapter chapter four, verse one. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, just as again <laughs> Like, there's, there's so, like, little room for coincidence in this story. It just so happens that the Gardner, guardian redeemer uh, started coming along. He came along. And uh, Boaz said to him, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten elders of the town and gathered them and sat here, and they did so. So Boaz is setting up this scene for a transaction in front of these witnesses and these elders of the community. And then Boaz says in verse 3, then he said to the guardian redeemer, now Naomi who has come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That's Naomi's husband. And I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of all that are seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, do so. But if you do not do it, if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except for you, and I am the next in line. So Boaz is being really clear. He's making his intentions known. And so right now he's just talking about the land. And what's really important is that people, they had a deeper identity to the land than you and I. Like, we're very transient. I don't know the average number of times that we move in a decade, but for people, like their family line was deeply connected to the land. Even now, I have some friends who are parents or are farmers, and that's been in their family for generation and generation. It's a part of their family legacy. And so in this, in this situation, he's making it known that Naomi, she's in a desperate place Uh, She has to sell her land. She's, as you know, as you know, Naomi. She's desperate. She's come back. She has nothing and no one, other, you know, other than this this daughter-in-law. So she's so desperate. She's going to have to sell this land. And there is actually provision of this in in the law. This is Leviticus 25:25. It says, "If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold." So this is part of like the law that they were following. So, this unnamed relative hears Boaz kind of share the situation, and he says, I will redeem it. So, as a reader, you know, this is the moment we hold our breath, like, wait, we've seen God, like, weave these two people together, like, to bring these two people together, and now we're going to lose it to some distant relative? Really? Is that really what's going to happen here? What about the romance? Like, what about everything that's happened along the way? And, uh, but then Boaz shares, oh, there's a catch. Verse 5, then Boaz says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain, maintain the name of the dead with a property. Oh, thanks for sharing that little bit of information, Boaz. I forgot to mention that with the land comes a woman and she's from Moab, and and you you know how like every time someone from the Israel community marries someone from Moab, it's like destruction happens, so anyways, you you get her, and you get her mother-in-law, by the way, she's changed her name to Bitter lately, it's going to be awesome, you should totally buy this land, I mean, I mean, after like our time with our in-laws, at Thanksgiving, many of us probably want to rename some of our mothers-in-law Bitter, right? No, just kidding. Cheryl, if you're listening, I love you. Uh, So, like, you know, he's like, whoa, whoa, wait. I'm sorry, what? And I watched uh, Shark Tank recently. This is the moment in Shark Tank when they go, I'm out. I'm out. No way. I mean, there's like very little upside all of a sudden to this. But uh, so at this edition, at this little asterisk next to this transaction, this relative changes its tone in verse 6. The guardian redeemer says, then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my estate. That's something that's really important, that phrase, endanger my estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So this man backs out, this relative backs out because it might endanger his estate. What is that pointing to? Maybe it's the fear of being associated with a Moabite woman. You know, there's like a real racial tension in that time, maybe it was like the religious stigma. He was like, no, nah, it's too dangerous. Not worth it. Maybe it was the, the fact this man was, was really poor. So he would leverage all, of, all that he had to buy this estate. And it would maybe take up all of his resources. Oh, and if he has a son with this Moabite woman, guess who gets all of the stuff? His son is actually considered part of uh, part, of, part of Ruth's family line and her deceased husband. So he would leverage everything and it would go to that side of the family? N- no, not worth it. Or maybe, maybe the fact that uh, he, this man doesn't even have a son. So if he has a son with Ruth, then that son gets everything. So what, for whatever reason, this man hears this and he goes, no, this too, seems too costly. It seems too dangerous. And he shrugs his role as the kinsman-redeemer. It was too risky. It endangered too much. Now, this was no small decision that this man made. It came with a huge social disgrace. Uh, Look at what happens. This is in Deuteronomy 25. I know this is like weird technical, but I just think it helps paint the scene to understand what was happening. In Deuteronomy 25, if a brother, and in this case it kind of followed down, I think the the customs went down to uh, cousins later on, but if a brother decides not to act as the Kisman redeemer, this is what happens. They gather everyone where? At the town gate, in front of the elders, just like this situation in verse, uh, verses 8 through 10 in Deuteronomy 25. If the brother persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, and spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. Wow. That, man sh- that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. <laughs> and then that person with like one sandal would have to walk of shame. Go home. You know, so this was like a this was a big thing to not act in the in in the role of a redeemer was a huge deal to not give of yourself to allow your 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 brother's family line or in this case your, maybe your cousin's family line to continue. It's man, you, you've missed out on the opportunity to be a redeemer to be a provider. And so here, this relative decided to shirk his responsibility and he turned it over to Boaz. So in verse eight, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. (laughs) And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Malon. That's the two sons that had died. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. So we see here like Boaz is showing such incredible wisdom. And I just want to just kind of stop in this what we see here in this story is that God is at work, and God is at work. He's never audible. It's never obvious that he's doing or saying things, but God is maneuvering and having these situations so, like, just happen just by chance, but we see this, this incredible thing that God is doing. God never, we never have in this, in this whole story, we never see the story go into a temple We don't see this story go into a religious setting. What we see is that God is active in the most ordinary, normal places. On a road, in a field, in a threshing floor, in this court situation that God was present. And Boaz is also displaying his character and his wisdom. There's some things to learn about how Boaz has acted here. First off is he shared what was needed in what was appropriate. Boaz was shrewd. He wasn't deceptive. He didn't lie. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't deceiving. But he begins this conversation by talking about it as an investment, by property. So that's the way in which he enters into this conversation. It's an investment. And the man was in. But when Boaz begins to talk about the relational requirements, this man backed out. So Boaz was smart and in how and in, in shrewd in how he began the conversation, but he also, secondly, he had the means to execute on a plan. He had the desire and the means to act decisively. Like it's sometimes like we have the best intentions, but we just don't have we don't have the means to act decisively. What we see here with Boaz is that this must have been incredibly costly. But Boaz and Ruth, by the way, share us the costly nature of extending God's goodness and mercy. The costly nature of extending God's redemption. And some of us might have great intentions of doing good in this this world, but when opportunity presents itself, we haven't built up the rhythms or the habits or even the, the thought, the awareness or even built up the resources to act decisively with generosity. What we see is that Boaz was a mover and a shaker. He had prepared for this day so that when the opportunity could come, he said, I'm going to buy that estate, and I'm going to marry Ruth. He was ready. But we also see Boaz's wisdom, and he included the community. Not only is this community just for the sake of having witnesses, so that this conversation is known by others. But what we see is that in this conversation, this community, in the verses following, they end up blessing this marriage. It was almost like a wedding scene without Ruth present because they began to give blessings to Boaz and blessings to Ruth. And they were celebrating it as a community, These like we are living in such an individualized society now that one of the things that we miss out on is expanding our joy by including communities in what's happening in our lives. So Boaz, he's including this community not only for witnesses, but I think also so that this community can celebrate the the fact that Naomi and Ruth have been redeemed. Like this. This place of suffering has been redeemed and this community was ready to celebrate. They're ready to be joyous together. And the final thing that Boaz displays in this that I think is just such wisdom is he prized the right thing. Boaz cherished and prized and treasured the right thing. We see in this interaction the difference between the the first Redeemer and Boaz, the second Redeemer. And what is the difference? The first Redeemer wanted the land, but he didn't want the people. And Boaz, he wanted Ruth, and the land, secondary. The relationship is what he cared about. And this, for me, is something that is just so deeply important, I think, for our church as well, is that we are going to care about people one of the things that Jen and I, we try to instill in our kids, we, we're going to be super annoying as our kids get up older. They're already practicing their eye rolls. But we, we say certain statements again and again to try to ingrain it into our family's life. One of the things that we say often is that people are more important than things. People are more important than things. So some neighborhood kid took your toy. People are more important than things. That's the wisdom we see in this passage Here is that people are more important than things. And why this is so important is that this is the very heart of Jesus. That, th- that things in this world matter, yeah, but nothing compared to what God treasures the most, which is people. And this should like confront us in some ways and provide us a lens for us to consider our life. Are the things that I'm caring about more people or things? Is it more the land or the relationships in this situation? Are people in my life, are they more of a problem or are they more of a prize? How, how am I seeing the people around me? And what I'm so grateful for, and this is so important for us, is aren't you thankful that Jesus was not like the first Redeemer? Who looked at the needs of our life and our world and said, you know what? It's too dangerous. It's too costly. It's too risky to give up everything for them. It's, it's not worth it. It's maybe, maybe better to be say, say, stay protected, to stay comfortable. Aren't you grateful the fact that Jesus treasured people we see this, he says this in Matthew 13, 44, when Jesus would describe what is important. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had so he, he could buy that field. What he, this, this is the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is saying, is this kingdom is God is finding something in which is treasured and selling everything you have so that you can get it. And Jesus over and over and over again displays that the most cherished thing that He has, other than following His Father, is is redeeming you and me and people. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus' treasure is you. And He wanted to redeem you just like Boaz wanted to redeem Ruth. Boaz was happy to play this part in the redemption. And it made me wonder, how did Boaz have the means to be able to buy this estate immediately? And I wonder, I didn't find this in any commentaries. That always makes me nervous when I'm like, oh, that's an original idea. Like, I don't want any original ideas uh, because we've had the Bible now for a long time, you know. Uh, But I wonder if, I wonder if the way in which Boaz was able to redeem this estate and act decisively, is where was he the night before? He was at the threshing field with the crops, preparing them to be sold. For 10 years, he's had famine. For 10 years, he has very little provision. And he had it the night before. And I wonder, just wonder, if he took some of that provision and said, it's time to give it up. Maybe God allowed this famine to end on this, on this season so that I could be able to play this role in redeeming Ruth and redeeming Naomi and this family line. And all that God was doing was so that he could give it away. What a beautiful legacy. What a beautiful example that Boaz treasured what God treasured. Now, before I read the rest of the story, I just want to pose a question for us. And this is an annoying question because I think there's actually one answer. So the question is, who is the protagonist in this story? And the protagonist is the role Uh, in the story, not the main character, but it's the person for which the the story is transforming. The the character who's developing either for the better or for the worse throughout the story. Who would be that person? So my argument is that the protagonist in this story is Naomi. She's the one that's changing. She's the one that's transforming. Why? She starts off fleeing her home and her people, maybe even fleeing God to go into distant land. Ten years later, returns empty-handed and angry at God. In chapter two, we see her heart starting to warm when she realizes that Ruth just so happens to stumble upon Boaz's land. That she begins to bless Boaz in God's name, the same God that she cursed in the first chapter. And then in chapter three, that we see Naomi moving past her business when bitterness when she realizes that Ruth needed a home and a husband. And she starts caring for her in that way. And then she ends up in this fourth and final act, in this fourth and final chapter, when she began where she was empty-handed, and notice where the story is going to leave her. In verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. In verse 16, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed, which, by the way, means worshiper, means servant. The same mother who named her son weak and sickly, if you remember that from the first week, she's holding in her hands this little boy who's going to be a worshiper, who's going to be a servant. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. There in her hands, this woman empty-hamptied, bitter to God, angry at God, is holding the grandfather of King David who served the nation. He wasn't perfect, but he served the nation, and he was a worshiper right there in her hands. And we see how God is redeeming and transforming Naomi and all the ups and downs The same group of women that when Naomi showed up on day one of returning, she just spewed venom of just her bitterness towards God. It's the same group that turns around, they name her son. They delight in God's provision. And did you notice, uh, if you could go back one slide, this just, man, this is, the number seven, this is kind of a weird small thing, but the number seven means complete or full. Full. When Naomi thought that she was empty-handed, she had something. Her friends, Naomi's friends, said this to her about what God was. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. They're pointing at the fact that, man, Naomi, you had one of the greatest blessings of your life in your daughter-in-law, who is better, by the way, than all the sons. Seven sons. She is that good of a gift. When you thought you were empty-handed and bitter, you actually had God's blessing with you by your side. And we see that God's presence through Ruth was the conduit for the ways in which Naomi was going to be transformed. Sometimes the the way in which God is going to provide for us is going to be in the relationships in this room. The way we're going to walk with each other, we're going to care for each other, we're going to provide for each other. That might be the way in which God shows up. When we think that we are going to complain about God to a friend, maybe the voice in the face of God is right there in front of you, loving you and listening to you. And in that, there is healing and redemption. What a change. And it came through loss and pain. And unfortunately, sometimes, it comes through loss and pain that we are transformed. But what this story shares is that, with, just like Naomi, it's like us, that God's not done changing and transforming us, growing us to the people that God wants us to be but it's going to take some heartache. Sometimes life happens to us and and the Redeemer has to show up. I went to a a funeral uh, uh, for a friend of mine's uh, brother who died way too young um, a couple weeks ago. And um, because the funeral was so packed and uh, we showed up just on time, uh, vine time, and um, (laughs) I I had the privilege of sitting in the foyer uh, for the funeral Um, And because I was there, one of the things that happened was that there is, as you walked in the foray, there's a tapestry um, of the man who had passed away. Again, way too young. And it was this beautiful tapestry. It was of his face. It was um, a depiction of him. And I found myself looking at that tapestry during most of the church service, during most of the funeral. And that image stuck with me after I left and made me think of this story. Because oftentimes in life, what we notice and what we admire is the top side of the tapestry. But so many times our life is underneath. I mean, it's just full of knots. It looks chaotic. It doesn't seem to have much artistic uh, uh, appeal. It's not beautiful. And our lives are on the back side of this tapestry without an obvious plan or purpose. But the, art, the artist is doing something, has something else in mind. And this story reminds me of this. There's a beautiful poem by Corey ten Boom, and I just want to share a couple lines of this. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors He worketh steadily. Oft times He weaveth sorrow. And I, in foolish pride, forget He sees the upper, and I the underside. This story teaches us that there is a Redeemer, in the midst of the many turns and the loose ends and the knots and the blemishes, the artist sees something different and even redeems the damage that is done to the art in our life that's done by this world, the evil in this world. God's redeeming power is throughout Scripture. We reminded this in Ecclesiastes 3.11 when we were told that He has made everything beautiful in its time Not our time, but God's time. Everything can be made beautiful. Everything can have a redemptive purpose and potential. In Romans 8.28, it says this, and we know that in all things, not some things, but in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. There's nothing wasted on God. There's not an area of our life not an area of our suffering that's beyond the reach of our Redeemer. There's not a place in our life where the Redeemer is going to fail to show up. And the great Redeemer is active, always active in our life. And even in the pain and the sorrow that seems to have no redemptive purpose, no sense of redemptive purpose, what we find is that God is even just there in the suffering with us. He's available and present with us, and even in that is just redemption in itself, that we have a Redeemer who can be with us in our pain, because He too has wounds and scars. He too has been suffered. So, driven out of compassion, Jesus gave everything so that we could know that there is is a Redeemer with us in our suffering. It's a church family, the same God that was active in this story, the same God that was redeeming underneath the surface of this story is active in your life. And one day, maybe one day, we might have clarity looking back to know what the the Redeemer was weaving in our story. How God was present and active in your story. This is the legacy of the story of Ruth. But our opportunity is that we get to live in this story we too have a Redeemer.